0: The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's word is a real blessing to you. Second Peter chapter 2, and uh, we're gonna be in verses 10 through 16. Before I read the text, I just want to encourage you to, to imagine that you are sitting among Peter's original audience the very first time this letter was read in the public service of the church. So hopefully you know from what we've read so far or studied so far in this book that that there was a sharp division among uh, Peter's original readers. Uh, You had within the church uh, the the pastors uh, who were encouraging the people to stay faithful to the apostolic message that they had heard for years and had believed. But then you had this group of false teachers who had... Worked their way in among the congregation and, and was pushing them uh, to a very different gospel. And and remember here, all right, that these false teachers are not just some nameless, faceless personalities. That they're not just guys on TV or guys that you read books about. No, these false teachers are people that you know, like you've been to their house, maybe you've watched their kids or they've watched your kids. Now, there's a significant relationship there. Maybe, maybe some of their family members are sitting in the room when, when this letter is read for the very first time. So, so with that context, you know, just, just imagine you're in that context as, as these words are read for the first time. So 2 Peter 2, verse 10 says, and especially, speaking of the false teachers, those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these are like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness and those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor who loved the wages of unrighteousness but he was rebuked for his iniquity a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet you can imagine it's probably pretty quiet in the room it's tense it's awkward and uh, and again it, it, uh, what makes it all the all the more significant is the fact that that everyone knows these guys i mean there's no secrets about who he's talking about here and, uh, and, and we, of course, are not dealing with these exact same false teachers. They're, they're long gone. They've been dead for a long time. But God knew that, that we would need this warning because false teachers are present in every age. They don't go away. They just keep coming back. And so my title today is Warning Signs of a False Teacher. So, so we want to be challenged to, to think about the red flags in both the character and the conduct of a false teacher— that would warn us that we should not be listening to this guy. Uh, but, but not just that. The, the warning that Peter gives in this passage is, is undergirded by a number of assumptions about the nature of genuine Christianity. And, and, so, and so, therefore, we don't just want to think about you know, all those bad guys out there and thinking about what was wrong about them. We want to also think about how God would have us live. And what are the warnings and the practical instructions for us in this passage? So, so regarding the structure of the passage, uh, verse 10 begins by highlighting two problems with the false teachers. So, it mentions, first of all, those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. So, So, perversion, lust. And then the second problem is they despise authority. And, and in the remainder of the passage... Uh, Peter essentially deals with these two problems in reverse order. So, so notice, first of all, in verses 10 through 13, that the false teachers were known for brazen rebellion, whereas genuine godliness is known for humble submission. So, so the contrast is between brazen rebellion and humble submission. And, and so first of all, Peter begins uh, here in verse 10 by describing the false teachers as presumptuous and self-willed. That's not good, is it? So, so he says here that these guys were arrogant. But you know, sometimes have you ever met someone that they're arrogant, but but they, they know like how to be, you know, how to hide their arrogance, like act like they're humble. These guys didn't even try to act humble. They thought they knew everything, and they were proud to tell you that they knew everything. They were presumptuous in, in, in speaking of their in, in describing all that they thought they knew. And then Peter follows with an example of that brash arrogance uh, at the end of verse 10 into verse 11. So again, he says, They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now, now this is one of those pair of verses that I'm sure Peter's readers knew exactly what Peter was talking about. But but we're kind of left wondering what in the world is going on here. So so there's a few different ways that people understand these two verses. I'm I'm mostly just going to tell you what I believe is right, and why I believe it's right. All right, so I won't bore you with all the various views. So so first of all, uh, the word dignitaries at the end of verse 10 is almost certainly a reference to demons. All right, or evil angels, and uh, and I say that because in context uh, it can't really be talking about men or. Or, or leaders in the church, anything like that. It seems to be some sort of supernatural power, and I say that he's just speaking here of, of evil angels uh, because verse eleven turns around and speaks of a different uh, of, of angels. All right, so there's a contrast between dignitaries and angels. So you have a contrast between evil angels and good angels. Seems to be the best way to understand it. So, so I'm going to read through the verses again and, and maybe. If you even want to write in a couple of notes here to help you think about who all is being talked about here. So he says, they are not afraid, all right, the the false teachers are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries or evil angels. Whereas good angels, who are greater in power and might, you could say, than the false teachers, do not bring a reviling accusation against the false teachers. Before the Lord, now 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 you're even more confused, right? Like what in the world uh, is going on here? Well, well, um, it's possible uh, that that the false teachers here uh, denied the existence of demons altogether. That that they said be, be, in verse chapter three is going to talk about the fact that that they had more of a naturalistic worldview. So so it might be that they believe that there's no such thing as demons. So so we don't need to worry about them. Uh, but but the more likely view is, is that they should have been afraid that their ungodly, rebellious lifestyle uh, would put them under the control of demons. But they weren't afraid at all. And I say that because the scriptures are clear, that that if I live an ungodly life, if I live in rebellion against God, I do not walk in Christ, that that I actually do make myself susceptible to Satan's work in a way that that a godly, obedient Christian is not. But, But these false teachers... They mocked the idea of of being afraid at all of the the demons. They said, ah, we're fine. Nothing's going to happen to us. Those demons can't do anything to us. And they had a brash arrogance about themselves. And I think there's an important warning here for us, because our culture mostly ignores the existence of things like demons, right? And if we ever do acknowledge the existence of demonic powers, we, we sort of pretend like they are small and insignificant or, Or or we when we dabble in witchcraft and so forth in our culture, we 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 kind of view it as a fun little game, not something to be taken very seriously. But but Peter here assumes that 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 demons are very real. And that if I live a life of sin, I particularly open myself up to their influence. So so I I should approach, I, I should appropriately respect demonic powers. And I should fear their influence in my life if I am not walking in Christ and faithful to him. And and, and that's in stark contrast. This this example of the false teachers is in stark contrast to the caution of the good angels. So so Peter points out that the good angels, uh, they have much more power and might than the false teachers. Um, You know, because the good angels, the, the bad angels aren't necessarily different in power although, of course, there are varying levels of, 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 of angelic powers. So, so they're, they're greater in power and might than the, than the false teachers. But even though the angels have a greater right to be bold, you know, to stick their chest out, they don't even bring an accusation before the Lord. No, they, they let God be God, and they're cautious, humble, and careful. And Peter's purpose here is to point out the absurdity of the false teachers brash arrogance i mean it wasn't based in reality you know they talked big they acted big but they had nothing to stand you know nothing behind it and of course the primary application is that godly teachers are not known for brazen naive arrogance but instead for reverent cautious humility of course but sadly many false teachers gain a following by by being brazen and arrogant. You know, so so they're brash, they're sensational. You know, a lot of false teachers, they have this kind of twisted God complex where, where they think they're big stuff and, and they talk like they're big stuff, and and they just kind of try and create this aura around themselves that 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 pulls people towards them. And their big talk sadly appeals to many people's fears and frustrations. Maybe people, some people enjoy that that boldness that they have. And and I do want to be clear, of course, that that godly teachers should be confident, right? Should be, should be, uh, have conviction and so forth. But but a godly teacher's confidence will always be based in the scriptures, not in my sweeping judgments or accusations. And, and, And so therefore, you should be very careful, very careful, about listening to anyone who claims to be a teacher of God's Word, who is brash and arrogant, and who is not firmly rooted in the Scriptures and in the Gospel as his confidence. And of course as well, we ought to be very careful to make sure that our own lives are are marked by that same humble caution. You know, as I said uh, in in my blog post a week ago, We ought to be charitable towards others, and we ought to be slow to make assumptions and judgments. And and when you speak, speak based in God's word. Because people don't really need to know what you think. Your opinions don't really matter all that much. What matters is what God has said. And so let's stay rooted in the scriptures. And then verse 12 drives this home with an ominous comparison. So verse 12 says, but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness. So, so verse 12 here compares the false teachers to wild animals and probably, uh, probably specifically here like predators. Uh, so like lions or wolves, uh, that sort of animal, and, um, and and so first of all, he he compares them to these violent animals in the sense uh, that the false teachers are violent and irrational. They they, they are destructive. So so Peter says uh, that, that that these animals—think of a lion, think of a wolf—they're they're not rational. They're not caring. They're not peace-loving animals. No, they're brutal. They're violent killers. And they lack our our rational capabilities. They lack the grace and the kindness of human beings. And similarly, Peter says that the false teachers were brutal, violent, and irrational. That's not a compliment, is it? You know, to to be compared to a brute beast. It's a sharp criticism here of their arrogance, their nonsensical conduct, the, the damage that they were doing to other people without any care or concern. And again, God is warning us that we should not follow that kind of leader. Now, godly, godly leaders are not rash and impulsive. And they don't sacrifice the, 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 the souls of men to, to build their name or to build their kingdom or, or to, to gain a following. They don't feast on controversy. They're not just outliving off of arguments and, 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 and debates. No, they're bold but gracious because they stand on the scriptures as their authority. And they do everything out of love and care for others. So, so the false teachers are brute and irrational like these beasts. And then the second point of comparison is that the false teachers will be caught and destroyed just like violent animals. Peter says that God is going to judge them. I mean, notice what he says. He says, they will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness. Now, again, it's one thing to use that sort of language, you know, for some guy on TV or some guy that you read about on the Internet. But it's another thing to use that kind of language for someone that you know and and that everyone in your audience knows. You know, just imagine what it would be like if, if we had someone that was a member of our church. And we had to stand here in front of you and say that this guy that you all know is, is someone who is a brute beast, and he will utterly perish in his own corruption and receive the wages of his unrighteousness. Now I hope that we never have to do that. I hope that God continues to preserve and protect our church from, from that sort of, of evil influence. But I pray that, that if we ever need to say those kinds of things that we'll have the boldness and the courage to do so. Because, because biblical love never sugarcoats evil in the name of unity. I mean, unity is important. Unity is very important biblically. But, but if someone is teaching a doctrine, teaching ideas that are destructive to the people of God, then you got to call it out. Because it is not love to ignore that sort of sin. And so, so, so let's, so what an example here, and, and what a stark warning. Now, of course, we, we should avoid the, the brazen arrogance that, that we saw, the false teachers, and how we speak about error. You know, again, we're not looking for controversy and not reveling and feasting and, and, and debate. But, but when we follow the biblical process of discipline, and the Bible is clear, we always have to call the wolf a wolf. You don't do any good to call the wolf a sheep. So so in verses 10 through 13, Peter confronts the brazen rebellion of the false teachers. And may God guard us as a church against that sort of arrogance, that brash, a rebellion against authority. And instead, let's be a people who are, first of all, just honest and real about who we are, about how small we are. And let's pursue humble submission to the Lord, where we recognize his authority, his control, and we depend on his grace. So so having addressed how the false teachers despised authority, uh, the second idea there at the beginning of verse 10, the remainder of the passage describes how these false teachers walked according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And and so I'm going to summarize uh, verses 13 through 16 as saying that the false teachers were known for shameless sensuality. Shameless sensuality, but genuine godliness is known for holy modesty. Holy modesty. And, and, and I'd like to break uh, verses 13 through 16 down into four sinful practices uh, that marked these false teachers. And the first is, is shameless carousing. Shameless carousing or partying, you could say. So he says there in verse 13 that, that these people count it a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. And they are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. So, so he uses the word carouse twice, All right, That's a word for partying. And of course, he's not talking here about, you know, some, you know, Baptist New Year's Eve party, you know, where you're eating, uh, eating carrots and, you know, drinking uh, Kool-Aid. No, I mean, this, this carousing he's talking about here is, is something that we all know. I mean, it's, uh, it's gluttony, it's, it's, it's drunkenness, it's immorality, it's a very uh, lustful sort of partying that's at stake. Uh, but what's unusual, of course, that's not unusual, is it? Lots of people carouse. Lots of people party. That's very normal. But what's unusual about these false teachers is that he says they carouse in the daytime. Now, now that's not normal, right? Because, I mean, there's a reason that nightclubs are called nightclubs and not dayclubs, clubs. Because the things that happen at nightclubs are things that most people don't want to do in the day. They, they want to do these things under the cover of darkness because they're shameful and wicked. But the false teachers had no such thing, shame. In fact, it's very likely that, 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 they, that they sinned and they did these wicked things and they did so out in public and, and they claimed some sort of spiritual knowledge or, or some sort of higher um, spirituality that, that allowed them to, to do these things without shame. Or, or, or any sort of guilt. And to make matters worse, Peter says, they were spots and blemishes on the church. Again, because they had no shame about behaving this way. And then notice what he goes on to say. Well, they, they are carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. And, um, and specifically, when he mentions here these feasts, uh, he's probably... Uh, thinking specifically here of, of, of the common practice in the early church where uh, they, would, they would have a meal together before the worship of the church. So, you know, back in the first century world, Sunday was not a day off for most people. You got a bunch of slaves and so forth. They've got to work all day long, and then they probably had their church service at night. And so uh, they get off work, come together, have a meal, and then worship and observe the Lord's Supper. And, and so those meals were a significant time of fellowship, spiritual care, brotherhood in Christ. And, uh, but the false teachers, they would shamelessly walk into these feasts as if nothing was wrong. They waltzed in like they deserved to be there, and, and they had no reason to, to feel shame or guilt over their sin. Now, now I do want to be clear uh, that, that broken sinners who, who, who are genuinely seeking after God's grace should always be welcomed into the church. The church is not a fortress to keep sinners out. It is a hospital for the sick. So so the point here is not that if you've sinned or you've failed God, that that you should stay away from the church. But the Bible is also clear that that we should have a very different response when someone claims to be right with God, claims that they've got nothing to, to be ashamed of, and yet, at the same time, they are walking in rebellion and sin. And that's why uh, the Scriptures are clear that, that church discipline is reserved for people who claim to be Christians. We don't need to exercise church discipline against someone who says, I don't know Jesus and I want nothing to do with Him. It's for people who say, I'm right with God, and yet clearly are walking in, in resistance to His will. So, so, So that's the problem here. These guys... Claim to be right with God. And they should have been ashamed to, to, to come into the fellowship of God's people when they are living in outright rebellion. But they were not. And as such, Peter says, they were spots and blemishes on the church. And so, folks, we need to be careful that, that we always reject fleshly passions and that we pursue holiness. You know, and when we fall, because we are, we're all going to sin, Let's be broken of our sin. And let's not come into the church in, in an effort to hide and, and, and act more holy than we actually are. But let's come in, in, in dependence on the grace of God, looking for help, looking for encouragement. So, so these people, uh, they were shamelessly carousing the second sin as is is they were involved in immoral pursuits. And, and so uh, he goes on to speak of their immorality. So, so verse 14 says, having eyes full of adultery. And that cannot cease from sin. And actually, the, the, the literal meaning of that clause is worse than what it originally sounds like. Because the literal meaning of that clause is they have eyes full of an adulteress. Full of an adulteress. And the point seems to be that the false teachers looked at every woman they saw as a potential sex partner. They didn't see them as, as image bearers of Christ. They didn't see fellow believers as brothers and sisters in Christ. No, no, no. they looked at every woman through the lens of their own lust and through their own evil imaginations. And I think it's worth emphasizing in our highly sexualized culture that, that God abhors that sort of obsession with sex. I mean, that's pretty common in our day, right? That, that, that every woman a man sees, he sees that way through the eyes of his own lust. And women do it plenty as well. But God God would teach us that we should always see everyone fundamentally as as an image bearer of God. And and we ought to see particularly Christians fundamentally as brothers and sisters in Christ. And and the same principle applies to to what you see on TV and, and to what you see in print media. That we should follow the example of Job who said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Job was determined to to never look on a woman with lust. And and I'd say as well that if there's anyone here today that that you find yourself knee deep in in sexual sin. Don't be ashamed to get help. You know, we, we want to help you. We want to help you grow. And and, and yes, sometimes there is a lot of shame, and, and a lot of pain in, in working through sexual problems and and sexual sins. But but it with all that pain, all that shame is worth the joy, of being right with the Lord, and right with others. So so do not tolerate that sort of sin in your life. And, and then finally, I hope that we're all in agreement that that an immoral lifestyle automatically disqualifies someone from spiritual leadership. Now, now, I say that, though, because the reality is, in a lot of places, that's not assumed. And sadly, there are a lot of, of, lot of people out there, a lot of preachers and teachers who, who, who claim to be spiritual leaders, who either have committed a sexual sins and, and never dealt with them biblically, or who continue to walk perversely and do so without shame, and, and, folks, I don't care how compelling, charismatic, or even spiritual some guy may seem to be. We, we cannot overlook blatant rebellion against God. You know, a pastor, a, a pastor or anyone else who sets himself up as a spiritual authority, but who does not submit himself to God's word, has no right, no credibility to preach and teach the scriptures. We should demand holiness. So, so the second sin is immorality. And then the third sinful practice is reckless destruction. Reckless destruction. And notice there's a little statement right there in the middle of verse 14. He describes the false teachers as enticing unstable souls. And the verb that's translated entice is a, word, is a verb uh, that comes from the world of hunting. And so I grew up in the Midwest. There are a lot of guys in the Midwest that love to go deer hunting. And, and, and if you're going to go deer hunting in the fall, you know, a lot of guys, they start you know, weeks, maybe months in advance of deer season. They go out and they plant bait. You know, they've got their deer blind in this spot, and then they've got some sort of opening, and they, and they put food out, You know, put out some apples or some carrots, very different things. And, and they train the deer to come into this spot and to feel comfortable coming there to eat. And, of course, the first day of deer season, guys sitting up in the tree, Deer wanders in, and bam, he's got his dinner for the night. And in a similar manner, Peter says that the false teachers here entice unstable souls. And unstable souls here would be a reference to people who are spiritually weak or lacking in discernment. And and, and these false teachers take advantage of their weakness with with confusing language at times, or, or by appealing to their lusts and fears. And they entice them and they lure them to their spiritual death and destruction. And again, that is all too common in our day as well. There's all sorts of prosperity preachers out there that promise people miracles, health and wealth and and all sorts, and happiness and, and various things in this world. And all sorts of cults as well are going to appeal to people's pride by offering them some sort of superior godliness and knowledge. And that form of godliness makes them feel safe, even while they are leading these people to the trap of condemnation in hell. It's tragic. And God despises it. God has no toleration. So I want to encourage you, be discerning. You know, compare everything you hear to Scripture. And welcome biblical confrontation and accountability. Because we all can be deceived. And so we need to be open to people coming into our life and helping us see our blind spots. And don't forget that the path to eternal life is generally difficult, narrow, and lonely. And finally, remember that genuine holiness is generally not marked by extravagance and show, but by modesty. Because it pursues the joy of heaven not the pleasures and the pizzazz of this world. So, so they were causing reckless destruction uh, to, to the people there in the church. And then the fourth sinful practice is greed. Greed. And so verse 14 ends by saying, they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Now, now we get our word gymnasium from the verb that's translated here as trained. And, and of course, athletes... Uh, athletes that compete at a high level, they, they generally have drills that they do over and over and over so so that they build muscle memory and so that they build habits. So So when they're in the game, they don't have to think about every little thing they do. They just do it because they've done it time after time after time. And similarly, Peter says that the false teachers had trained themselves in greed. They had pursued their own lusts and their passions time after time, to where it was just a rut. They did it without thinking. They did it without conviction or conscience. They had become masters of the craft of chasing their own lusts. And then verses 15 and 16 add to this picture. They say again that, that they have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with the man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, I think probably most of us are familiar with the story of Balaam. It's an interesting story. So, so remember uh, that Balak, uh, the king of the Moabites, uh, who is going to hire Balaam to come and, and pronounce a curse on Israel uh, as Israel is preparing to cross the Jordan and, and to defeat the Canaanites. And so, Balak uh, didn't want them to come in and destroy him. So, so he's going to pay. Uh, Balaam, a whole bunch of money. Uh, But of course, cursing the people of God is not a small thing, is it? So so God graciously comes to Balaam and says, buddy, you don't want to do this. Don't curse the people of God. And and initially, uh, Balaam says, okay, God, I won't do it. Says no to Balak. Well, Well, Balak ups the offer. Offers him a little bit more cash. And at the right price, Balaam says, All this money, or possibly the wrath of God. I'll take the money. And so he gets on his donkey, and he begins to ride his donkey towards where he's supposed to meet King Balak and where he's supposed to curse the children of Israel. And as he's going along, the angel of the Lord stands in the path with his sword drawn. Now, I don't know about you, that's about as clear of a warning as you can possibly get. Like, there is the angel of the Lord with his sword ready to kill you if you try and confront him. Well, Balaam is so blinded by his greed that he doesn't even see the angel of the Lord. But of course, his donkey does. And so his donkey uh, turns and goes off in the field and and you can kind of, you know, picture it's sort of a funny scene. You know, he starts kicking his donkey and beating him like, where are you going, you stubborn, foolish donkey? And and so this happens two or three times where, where he steers him one way and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and goes off the other way. And he's going on and on. He's pushing to get where he wants to go. He is so blinded by his greed that he can't see what's taking place. And then finally, God opened the donkey's mouth and enabled him to speak. And Peter says here in verse 16 uh, that the donkey restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, the word madness there is a very appropriate word because it speaks to how Balaam's greed had made him irrational and you could even say crazy. He was mad. And Peter says that the false teacher's greed had made them mad as well. They were clearly foolishly walking into the judgment of God. You reject the gospel and lead other people to reject the gospel? There's like the lowest pit of hell for that person. But they were walking that way. And in their lust for pleasure... They just hypnotically, it's like they're hypnotized by their greed and their passion. And they just kept walking in a path towards destruction. It's like they're walking right into the angel of the Lord's sword. And it's a sobering example of how lust can drive us into madness. You know, if you stare at sin long enough, eventually you will justify it. You know, it's like the little kid that just, you know, there's a cookie jar sitting on the counter. And if the little kid just looks at that cookie jar long enough, eventually he's going to come up with, with a reason why he needs to take a cookie. And if we live lives of greed and, and we allow our hearts to be trained in sin, then, then we will continue to, to go more and more. We will become mad, you could say. You know, as he says, that, you know, it becomes a habit. We, we just mindlessly chase our sin. Our conscience convicts us less and less. We develop ruts to where sin becomes easier and easier and more thoughtless and thoughtless. So be very careful. Don't even start down that road. And again, I'd encourage you, make sure that you've got godly counselors in your life who are close enough to you that they can see the deepest secrets. Like they can see something's not right. Like you may be doing all the right things on the outside and saying all the right things, but something's off. Your, your heart has changed. So, so let people close enough that, that they can watch you and help you so that blind madness does not creep into your heart. And of course, as well, I'd encourage you, don't follow any spiritual leader who is blinded by greed. Now, Again, there's nothing wrong with having nice things and so forth, uh, but showy extravagance or an obsession with worldly possessions are serious problems. And we should look for leaders, look for mentors who reflect the holy modesty of Christ, not the celebrity culture of our day or the, or the, the materialism of our day. So, so in conclusion, this passage warns us that the world is filled with very real threats to the gospel. I mean, you know, we, we like to think if we just love everyone... You know, get along, be happy, everything will be okay. But this passage tells us that there are very real threats to the gospel. Very real threats to to our spiritual health and to the spiritual health of those around us. And and love does not overlook those things. Love confronts them. And so so we need to be careful that we are not fooled. That we stay anchored to scripture and and that, that we... A recognize and discern error. And not only that, we need to watch our own hearts, that they are not drawn into into rebellion against God or into sensuality. Instead, we need to be careful that, that we are walking in humble submission before the Lord, that we recognize that He is the judge, that I am accountable to Him. And then, secondly, we need to walk in holy modesty holiness, not chasing the things of this world, but instead pursuing after our God and doing so with a modest sense of humility, not trying to be showy or attract attention to ourselves. And let's do all of this knowing that the Lord sees, the Lord sees even if no one else does, and he is faithful to reward us as we please him and glorify him. Let's let's go to him in prayer. Lord, Thank you so much for this warning in this passage. And Father, I pray that that each of us would watch our own hearts. And Lord, as well, that we would watch each other uh, in in a way, in in a manner of love and care. Uh, Father, I pray that you would protect all of us from the wolves that surround us and keep us rooted and anchored in Scripture and in your truth. And so, God, I pray that you would be glorified in us, that, Lord, you would root sin and wickedness out of our hearts, and that we would please you in everything we do and say. In Christ's name.